Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Gabby. And I'm Rob. And this is Dark Origins Podcast, a podcast where I tell Rob the inspirations behind all mediums of art. So movies, TV shows, music, etc. And sometimes we talk about times when life imitates art. So what's this one about? I, I know you told me that it's pretty dark. That's really all I know. It is very, very dark. I will give a trigger warning up front for child sexual assault, child abuse, animal sexual assault, and very violent torture. Yeah. Okay. Great. All right. So where does it take place? It takes place in rural Nebraska, but I should first tell you that this episode isn't going to be based on any fictional movie or story like we normally do. Wait, what? What? So so is this just something you came across like doom scrolling something and you just feel like it needs some more air because you've never heard it before or like what? How did you come across this? Yes, that's exactly how I came across it. And so you do doom scroll too much. Yeah, I do. <laughs> yeah, that's how I knew. And... I just had never heard about it before, and I thought that that was, considering everything that happens, I am very surprised that I had never heard of it. So yeah, I just thought it was an interesting topic to talk about, even though there's not any art based on it. Of course, every week we always put out a podcast that is based on art, but occasionally I think that it's okay to you know not do that. Well, I mean, you were doom scrolling, right? So somebody had to put out some kind of media. There is a documentary on it um, by Oxygen, and it's called, the name of the TV show by Oxygen is called Deadly Cults, and this particular episode is called Killers of Rulo. But the other reason why I thought this was important to talk about is because with everything going on in the United States today, especially with like Christian nationalism and stuff like that, I felt like this was an important story to talk about and remember although this is you know an extreme that can happen it is i think it is pertinent to the to the conversation because it can happen it has happened 
And it, if yeah. history isn't remembered, it repeats itself. Exactly. And this cult broke off of a hate group that existed throughout the 1900s. And obviously what happens in the cult is, you know, a very extreme case. But I think that it definitely is important to talk about how these types of groups work and how sometimes they can spiral out of control because Mm -hmm. we currently have a lot of, you know, very extreme groups within the Christian nationalist movement. And I'm not saying that they're all going to end up like this at all, (laughs) Obviously, but the hate that drives them infects everything that they touch and the hate that drove these people infected everything that they touched. And when you have that much hate inside of you, it's not that crazy for it to spin out of control you know, the way that it has, or I, I should say it's not that unbelievable that it could spin out of control the way that it did in this specific situation. So it, it just reminds me of fear leads to anger, anger leads to hate, hate leads to suffering. Indulging in our fears, whether our thoughts or actions, gives them power to hold us back. It's from Star Wars, right? Like, that's like sage wisdom from, the, you know, everybody's heard that, like, this the hate is just is a centerpiece of of something that can just spiral out of control and and make things go well like I said out of control right and and before we know it we're giving power to people that we don't mean to yeah yeah and groupthink sometimes takes over and really really bad things happen actually groupthink takes over in a lot of these cases and really, really bad things happen, whether it is on an individual level where someone is murdered or it's on a more systemic level where a, groups of people are hurt. Yeah, for sure. And it I mean, causes suffering. And, you know, as we get into the story, obviously I will tell you a little bit more about the hate group that this cult was born out of. Yeah. So I'll give you, you know, more information as we go through it. All right. What is one thing that all cult leaders seem to have in common? Do you have a guess? Uh, they have, how do I say this? Like a um, a God complex that yes. like an ego with an ego that doesn't like match reality. Like they're failures, but they believe that they are supreme. Right. Yeah. Yeah, Exactly. They have usually failed at most of their pursuits in life, and they are exceedingly average in most ways. But for some reason, they feel that they are the chosen one. That rings true when it comes to Michael Ryan, the leader of the Church of Yahweh in Rula, Nebraska. I'll tell you a bit about his life before I tell you about the cult and the murders associated with it. Michael was born on August 3rd, 1948. So he's a Leo. Yeah. Yeah. Because you're because you're a Leo, that's why you know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's the only one I know. Yeah, I was going to say, you're not really an astrology guy, so. No. Not a lot is known about his early childhood, but people who knew him growing up called him, quote unquote, a low average individual. As a teenager, he dropped out of high school and began working. He bounced from job to job until he started working as a trucker. Working as a trucker allowed him more stability than his other jobs, and he really needed that as he had just become a father. Apparently, he had a back injury that made driving a truck difficult, though, which threatened his family's livelihood. 
In order to treat the pain, he started smoking weed. And eventually something happened. Either he couldn't take the pain any longer or he got fired. Whatever. For like smoking weed, maybe. Yeah, because I mean, when you're a truck driver, you can't really be super high all the time. Oh, yeah, that's probably not. It's probably not allowed. Yeah. Unemployment was something that loomed over the heads of many rural Americans at the time. This happened in the early 1980s since agriculture wasn't doing so good. And this was actually, for farmers in particular, one of the worst times since the Great Depression. Many farmers were on the brink of foreclosure and the milieu was one of desperation and despair. Milieu? Yes. You could have gone with environment. You chose milieu. I did. Great choice. Thank you. (laughs) I love that. Michael began attending meetings held by a quote-unquote Christian minister named James Wickstrom. James was an ardent white supremacist who hated the government. He had risen through the ranks of the racist anti-government group, the Posse Comitatus. So the Posse Comitatus was an anti-Semitic and anti-black, anti-government group. So they hated taxes. They kind of bridged the gap between hating anyone who's not white and straight and hating having to pay taxes and having, you know, a government. Like I said, James traveled all across the Midwest instilling anti-Semitic and anti-government ideology in farmers. Some of his followers were just as hateful as he was, while others were poor and desperate to find a collective that fought back against the powers that be. At least this is what some historians say, although it's hard for me to imagine how anyone could brush off things that he touted because they agreed with his stance against the government and banks. So I don't know. And the Posse Comitatus is categorized by the Southern Poverty Law Center as a hate group. So this Mm -hmm. isn't just like, you know, some small group where not everyone knows what, what they stand for. This is a big group. People know that they hate Jewish people and they hate black people. So is it, would it, would it be like joining the KKK because they like their tax policies? Yeah, kind of, yeah. Is it that big? Well, no, it's not It's not as big as the KKK. I mean, the Posse Comitatus was mainly big in the Midwest because it was particularly focused on rural farmers. Yeah, the farmer. Yeah, okay. So, you know, Michael had been going to these meetings and finally he actually meets James at a Bible lecture in Hiawatha, Kansas. And James starts to teach Michael some of his methods of manipulating his followers into trusting him unconditionally. Michael clearly felt emboldened by listening to James speak, and soon enough he believed that he was receiving messages from God. He amassed a small crew of followers who ended up moving onto a compound with him when a friend of his, an old farmer named Rick Stice, allowed them to stay on his property to avoid foreclosure after his wife passed away. Michael, so, so he allowed him to stay on the farm. Does, I mean, so he's just like, so he's charging them rent or whatever to help pay the bills or something along those lines? I, or or they're working the farm? Do we know? They all start working the farm. Okay. And well, you'll see how it goes. Okay. So one of the things that James taught Michael was something called the arm test. The arm test entails holding the participant's arm and shoulder while asking Yahweh, because Michael refers to God as Yahweh, Sure. while asking Yahweh a yes or no question. If Yahweh says no, then the person's arm would drop, and if he says yes, then the person's arm would remain up. 
but Michael had control of the arm, so he would force it to drop down or stay up depending on what he wanted the answer to be. But when you hear from his ex-wife or one of his ex-wives. Oh, boy. Um, One of those guys, huh? Yeah. She says that you really didn't have control over it. Like, she fully believed that she did not have control over her arm staying up or dropping. Well, she didn't. She had the dude holding her arm. I mean... She believed that it was Yahweh. <laughs> I'm kidding. I know. So do you know, from watching this, her impression, this was her speaking on the documentary? Yes. So did you get the impression that she still believed that? I got the impression that she still believed that at the time it was, she She seemed like maybe now she wouldn't believe it, but she was just saying that at the time she fully believed right. yeah, that I know it was that Yahweh. She, I know that she said then she believed it 100%, but did she still believe it? That's what I wanted to know. Like, Does she know now that she was being scammed? Yes, I think now she understands that she was being manipulated. Okay. Surprisingly, Michael let other members of the group administer the test as well. And soon enough, it became routine to consult Yahweh via the arm test to make all decisions on the compound. So every every decision from what are we going to eat today to who was going to do what chore, what task today, it was all decided via the arm test. That's insane. I know. <laughs> Why doesn't he just make the menu? Well, because that was like the women's duty. I'll tell you, I'll tell you more about it. He had many other manipulation tactics that he used to control his religious followers. He told him that he was possessed by the Archangel Michael and that he spoke to Yahweh on a regular basis because he's possessed by the Archangel Michael, so he has a direct line to God. His followers believed his claims, which became even more advantageous to him after they all moved on to Rick's farm. Obviously, Michael used his followers' belief in him to exploit them. He started by telling them that Yahweh wanted them to go out and steal from others in the area, and he basically threatened them by saying their families would not be safe if they upset Yahweh. So if they didn't do what Michael wanted them to do, their families wouldn't be safe. Michael himself would never go on these stealing missions, but he masterminded them. The group would steal livestock, farm machinery, and construction equipment. They raided homes in three states, Kansas, Missouri, and Nebraska. Michael also held a weekly Bible study where he would cherry pick verses in the Bible that he agreed with and argue that, quote unquote, the Jews added everything else he didn't agree with. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Did he read the Bible? Who fucking knows? Because, I mean, I mean yes, they did read the Bible at, at during their Bible studies, but who knows how much of it they actually read. I, I bet he probably focused... You know, on specific parts. I mean, does he understand that everyone was Jewish <laughs> and then they all started following Christ? <laughs> That's the thing is, honestly, I don't know. Like, I genuinely do not know. <laughs> like, I mean, it's so fucking stupid. It Like, it is. It's so dumb. It makes no sense. And that's the thing is, like, there's no logic behind what they're saying but yet they say it so convincingly, at least to the people around them, that everyone just believes it. So, yeah, that's a very good question. And I mean, I also shouldn't say, like, everyone was Jewish. I mean, there's plenty of other religions going on at the time. I'm just saying 
Like goodness. Yeah, I know. I get what you're saying. Yeah, I just, I just, I don't want to offend anybody, and I also don't want to make these brazen statements. You know, I'm just saying, like, dude. Yeah. The the Torah is essentially the Old Testament for God's sake. Yeah. I know. <laughs> I know. It's half the Bible, bro. Yeah. Like, come on, man. I know. Unsurprisingly, Michael started claiming that Yahweh wanted him to have multiple wives. Well, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He was already married to a woman named Ruth, but he pulled one of the group members named Cheryl Gibson aside and told her that Yahweh wanted her to leave her husband and marry him. Because there's only nine commandments, you see. <laughs> yeah, you just cherry pick what you want to do and fuck the rest of it. He threatened her by telling her that her husband and children would get into a fatal car accident if she didn't marry him. God. Cheryl ultimately decided to separate from her husband and move in with Michael and Ruth. In May of 1984, the group had a makeshift wedding for Cheryl and Michael. And this is something that they're going to do several times. They're going to have these like cult weddings and marry, you know, certain people to each other. Yeah, I mean, that that sounds... That sounds on brand. Yeah. Right? I mean, especially if you like you don't believe the government has power, right? Like you don't believe they should have power or whatever, and you're kind of separating yourself from that. You make your own rules and we're gonna officiate this wedding and you're officially married. Go ahead. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That makes sense. So real quick, I'm gonna tell you the names of the people who are living on the farm at this point, just to make things, because there's a lot of people, it can get a little confusing. I'm just going to kind of set it up real quick by telling you everyone. Okay. So Rick, of course, the owner, he had three children that lived there as well. And then Michael Ryan, the leader, Ruth Ryan, Cheryl Gibson, Michael's three children, Cheryl's five children, and then James Haverkamp, Lisa Haverkamp, James Tim, John David Andreas, and Timothy Haverkamp. So like 20 people. Yeah. In addition to this, Maxine Haverkamp would visit frequently, and Maxine is the mother of some of the women living on the compound. Okay. That same month, Rick, the owner of the farm, was married to Lisa, who by some accounts, and these are the only accounts that I could actually find her age, was 15 at the time. But I wasn't able to corroborate that with other sources because they just didn't have her age in there. But I'm pretty sure that she was 15. She's young one way or the other and probably underage. Yes. So, yeah. So they're they're married in a cult ceremony. Gross. Michael then decided that he wanted to take on another wife. So he held another cult ceremony to marry Cheryl's mom, Maxine Haverkamp. This dude is just getting the whole family together. Yeah. What? The commune was set up. Never mind. Never mind. I have no comments. Okay. The commune was set up so that there were two separate trailers. The south trailer was used to house Rick and Lisa. Oh, and I have to tell you that Rick and Lisa were not allowed to consummate their marriage. That's What? what Michael told them. Michael told them that Yahweh did not want them to consummate their marriage yet. And they had to wait until Yahweh said it was okay for them to do it. And yeah. So they were allowed to sleep together as in like sleep in the same bed together, but they were not allowed to have sex. Yeah, that's going to work. Right. So. But but like, so 
Okay, so Michael is trying at this point, he's trying to increase his level of control. Yeah, he's just trying to assert control, you know, wherever he can. Trying to assert dominance. Yeah. So the South trailer was used to house Rick and Lisa, and the North trailer housed the rest of the group. All 18 others, roughly? Yes. Strangely enough, the North trailer was set up so that the men slept together in a big room, and the women and children slept together throughout the rest of the rooms. Daily life on the farm was different for the men and women. Women would use the arm test to plan the meals for the day. The men spent their time planning stealing raids that were led by Michael. By lead, I mean he told them what to do and how to do it, but he never actually participated in the execution of the raid. Yeah, you were saying that. So he'd kind of help them plan, like kind of brainstorm, and then they would go commit the felonies? Yes. It's kind of like a Charles Manson kind of guy in a way. Yeah, exactly. In fact, Michael spent most of his days watching TV while the rest of the group worked to keep everyone fed and housed. To make the men feel important, Michael gave them all military titles. They might not have been fighting an earthly war, but Michael had convinced them that they would be fighting in the Battle of Armageddon soon. Of course. And he told them that it would occur near Rulo. In order to prepare, the group began stockpiling all of the items that they stole in their raids. The stockpile included... 75,000 rounds of ammunition, tons of weapons, some of which were fully automatic, seed, charcoal, and lots of food. I'm not sure if any of the men had jobs outside of the farm, but it seems like Michael didn't use the money made from the raids to help Rick pay for it because he lost it before the year ended. Wait, he lost the farm? Yes, but in order to keep everyone from becoming homeless, another member of the group, James bought it using money that he stole from his father. So Michael was growing frustrated with Rick since he lost the farm. It seems like Rick had maybe begun to express doubts in Yahweh and the arm test, which further angered Michael. And another thing that really, really pissed Michael off was, remember how he said that Rick and Lisa couldn't consummate their marriage? Yeah. Well, Lisa got pregnant. Oh. So... They obviously had sex. Michael was fucking pissed because, you know, for him, he's this is all about control. If you go against that, that's like the worst thing that you could do to hurt his ego is do something that he told you not to do. Right. So as punishment for this, he moved Lisa into the north trailer with everyone else, leaving Rick to live and sleep alone in the south trailer. Soon after, Michael declared that Yahweh wanted him to wed Lisa, who was still technically in a relationship with Rick. He's married. And who was also the sister of Cheryl and daughter of Maxine, who are both married to Michael. What? Yes. So at this point, Michael is married to Ruth, Cheryl, Lisa, and Maxine, Cheryl, and Lisa's mom. She also has another daughter, too. But anyways... Goodness gracious. Does he end up marrying her too? Yes. Yes, he does. The other daughter? Yes. What do you mean? He does. She's not even on the farm. She comes and he does marry her. In December of 1984, Michael gathered the group together to have a meeting. The first thing on the addendum was that Lisa was now considered the queen of Israel. Oh my goodness. 
He then went on to tell the group that there shouldn't be any more displays of jealousy on the farm. A context to this, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure that there was jealousy displayed, but they don't talk about what jealousy he's talking um, about. This guy is married to mom, sister, sister, cousin. What I mean, he's married to the whole family. Like, no, dude, there's going to be some jealousy there. Oh, I was, I'm going to, I'm sleeping with your sister on Wednesday. Like, no, come on. Yeah. There's going to be jealousy. There's going to be a lot of rancor in the milieu. What? Look it up, rancor. There's going to be, there's going to be a lot of contention within this milieu. He threatened them, telling them that police would come and take their children if they didn't adhere to this rule. So if they show any type of jealousy, he's telling them that police will come and take their kids. And he kind of gave them an out if they didn't want to remain on the farm by giving everyone the chance to stay or leave. Of course, he made it clear to anyone who leaves that they would burn in hell. So, <laughs> you know. No choice here. I mean, you, you stay or go burn in hell. Yeah. And I mean, they fully, fully believe this. Right. So right, right, right. it's, you know, it sounds kind of funny to us, but these people really no, believe I, this. No, it doesn't. It, I'm laughing because it's like, it's not funny. It's not why I'm laughing. It's because like, of course, that's what he said. Yeah. Y you can leave and spend the rest of eternity in hell with Satan. Yeah. That's your choice. Yeah. For those that chose to stay, Michael made it clear that they would have to stay forever. If anyone chose to stay but then decided to leave, he promised to hunt them down and kill them. So this is if they stayed and then left. Yeah. Okay. So everyone has, you know, decided to stay. No one leaves. Of course not. But things start to escalate a little bit. Mm -hmm. Obviously, Michael is already upset with Rick. Mm -hmm. Now he's becoming upset with Rick's son, Luke, who is five years old. And I think that... He really was just trying to hurt Rick even more. I think his anger towards Rick or just his anger, you know, just his, his hatred and anger that he held for fucking everything in the world was he was using Rick and his son Luke to kind of let it out. Okay. So he's taking his anger out on Rick. He's taking his anger out on Rick's son Luke at this point. And then for no reason whatsoever, he begins to target another member named James Tim. And the strange thing is that a lot of the members say that Tim was the most devoted follower. There was not a single person on the compound who believed in Yahweh and who believed in Michael more than James Tim. Okay. So... He moved James and Luke into the South trailer with Rick, and he began to refer to them only by humiliating names. He called them everything from slaves to dog shit, and they were technically, like, the men at least had those military titles. Obviously, the little kid didn't, but they were demoted from whatever their title was to slaves. They were forced to take over many of the jobs around the farm, which would be impossible for two adults and one child to get done every day. Michael's wrath escalated quickly, and his maltreatment of the three became so sadistic that I think it might be some of the worst torture I have ever heard about. 
If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. First, he started out by threatening the men with the worst pain imaginable, telling Rick that he would cut off his penis and skin and burn his five-year-old son alive. He forced them to do calisthenics and then he began to make them engage in humiliating acts. He forced James to have anal sex with Rick, and he forced Rick to sexually assault his own son, and he forced Luke, the son, to do the same to Rick, his father. And he would gather all of the men together while they did this and make them watch. I imagine he did this for two reasons— the first is that it makes it even more torturous for Rick and Luke, and the second is that it serves as a good warning to all of the other men not to fall out of line, because now they know what he's capable of. He also put ashes from his cigarette in Luke's mouth, spit on him, shot him in the arm, and tied something around his neck and lifted him off of the ground with it. In between torture sessions, Michael had time to wed another bride. This time it was Deborah Thiel. She was the sister of Cheryl and Lisa and another daughter of Maxine. So at this point, Michael is married to three sisters, their mother and his original wife, Ruth. Five. Yep. Yes. Unfortunately, during one of Michael's torture sessions, he killed poor little five-year-old Luke by shoving him so hard that his head hit a cabinet with enough force to kill him. He then forced Rick, Luke's father and James to dig Luke's grave. Very soon after Luke's death, Michael forced Rick to have sex with a goat. This would happen multiple times. He would tell Rick, you have two choices. Either I shoot you, or you have sex with a goat. More like you rape, rape a goat. A goat. Yeah, You're, they're both being raped, really. Rick did get a chance to free himself from Michael during March of 1985 when Michael took one of his wives, Lisa, on a honeymoon to Kansas City. While he was gone, he put his son, Dennis, and another member, Timothy, in charge of the farm. Rick saw his opportunity and he took it. He ran away from the farm. 
unfortunately, he couldn't shake the fear of eternal damnation, so he ended up going back just seven days later. Michael had learned from Rick's escape, though, so by the time Rick got back, James was already shackled to the porch of the South trailer in order to prevent him from trying to escape, too. Rick was promptly chained to the porch after returning as well, and I think this might have been the thing that made Rick realize how fucked up this whole thing is. After experiencing seven days of freedom and then coming back to the hellhole that is the Rouleau farm, I think he immediately regretted his decision. Finally, the threat of eternal damnation didn't seem so bad considering he was literally living in hell on that farm anyways. Yeah. So on April 4th, 1985, when Rick was driven into town by cult member Timothy to cash his social security check, he ran away again. This time he never looked back. Unfortunately, he also didn't contact police right away. In fact, it would take him until June 26th, 1985 to call them. June 26th and he left April 4th, you said? Yeah. So a month and a half? Yeah. Almost two months? Yeah. In that time, another murder would take place. Out of the three individuals Michael had been torturing, James was the only one left. He remained shackled to the porch and he was given small birds to eat. So the little small birds that they shot, that's what he had to eat. Similarly to Rick, Michael also forced James to have sex with a goat or to rape a goat and be raped. 23 days after Rick escaped, James' torture escalated when he was accused of poisoning a turkey that was meant to be eaten by the group. But he he can't even get off of the porch. I know. It's bullshit. He has no access to poison, no access to the turkey. How could he possibly do this? He couldn't. And still at this point, he is still so devoted. He, He thinks he's done something wrong. Like somehow it's his fault. Yeah. Michael gathered all of the men and had them beat the shit out of him before taking him to the hog confinement building to be shackled up there. The next morning, Michael allowed one of the members to take a bowl of cereal to him, and this member was James' best friend. So they had been best friends for a long time, and James' sister, even in the documentary, says, like, I I know that the name of the man that I'm talking about is James. John David Andreas. He goes by David. Okay. She said, I know that David loved him. So he's having to partake in all of this, even though he loves James, you know? Yeah. So after David takes the cereal to James, the men reconvened and went out to the pig building together. Michael ordered James to take off his clothes and bend over a crate. He then raped Michael with the handle of a shovel dipped in grease. Oh. Michael passed the shovel around the group so that each member got a turn raping him. This includes Michael James Haverkamp, Timothy Haverkamp, Michael's son Dennis, and James' best friend David. Michael tied James' arms up to keep him from being able to fight back. And then he told the group that Yahweh wanted the handle to be inserted 8 to 10 inches into James. He went so far as to mark the handle so the men knew for sure how far to go. It would later be confirmed that the handle was inserted about two feet into James. Jesus. Then they kicked him in the head and taped over his mouth to keep his screams from becoming too loud. Once they had finished raping him, they forced him to sign over his car title to one of the members named Timothy, and then they took turns raping him again. At this point, James' rectal wall had ruptured. Uh Uh-huh. 
So the men opted to use a tool that was wider and shorter so that it would be just as painful but wouldn't kill him. After each member got a turn raping James with the new tool, they left him tied up there. They went to go finish some chores and afterwards Michael wanted to torture James some more. So the group reconvened and went out to the hog confinement building where James was still tied up. They untied him and retied him to an overhead auger. So at this point, he's basically hanging down from this auger and they take a leather bullwhip and begin to whip him. All over a turkey. All over fucking nothing because, you know, the turkey, I mean, Michael had to have known there's no way that he could have poisoned the turkey. So for the other members, they're thinking that this is Yahweh's will. We are doing what Yahweh wants us to do because that's what Michael is telling them. But for Michael, I mean, he has to know on some level that he's just doing this because he wants to. Yeah. Once they were finished whipping him, they took him down from the auger and chained him up like they usually did before leaving him for the night. The next morning, the men headed down to the hog building to give James even more lashings with the whip. This time, they forced him to lay on his back, which had fresh wounds all over it from the night before, and they began to whip his stomach and chest. Then they grabbed his hand and laid it on a block of wood with his palm facing up. Michael approached him with a gun and shot one of his fingertips off. The gun was then passed from member to member while they each took a turn shooting a fingertip. By the time they were finished, every fingertip on James' left hand was gone, including his thumb. Somehow, the men had an appetite after this, so they left James there to go eat lunch together. Over lunch, they discussed their next steps. Michael told them that Yahweh wanted James to die by that afternoon. The final torture session occurred later that day, as they had planned. Michael started by kicking James' arms until they broke. He then explained to James that he was going to skin him alive. After putting on gloves, Michael began to cut the skin on James' legs before using pliers to pull strips of his flesh off. After this, Michael told his son Dennis to break one of James' legs using a 2 by 4 He repeatedly hit James in the kneecap with it until it finally broke. Michael then told his son and one of the other members that there was an easier way to break a leg, so he showed them how, and his method entailed placing James' leg over a block of wood before hitting it with the 2 by 4 After they broke his other leg that way, Michael began to violently stomp on James' chest, and this finally killed him. The group quickly got to work to dig a grave for James. They put his body, his clothes, and his sleeping bag in the hole, and then Michael instructed one of the members to shoot him so that it looked like an execution, which makes no fucking sense because he has all of these other injuries all over his body, so I don't know what Michael was thinking. Right. Then they covered his body with dirt and continued on like it never happened. Thankfully, justice would catch up to them in June of 1985. Two of the members were arrested with stolen property on them. So two of the members had gone to do a raid at night and they were driving the stolen farm equipment back to the compound and police officers just happened to be there. So they pulled them over because that's really weird. Why are you driving farm equipment? I mean, it's clear that you're stealing farm equipment. Right. The two members that were arrested during this raid were James Haverkamp and David Andreas. They were jailed. And then they very quickly turned on Michael and their cult. Heck yeah, they did. They told police about the murders and where they could find the bodies. Multiple agencies were involved in the search of the farm because 
while this had all been going on, there was actually an FBI agent who had been investigating the cult for a while. Really? Yes, because he had been told that they were, you know, stealing things from all over the Midwest. And that's how he first got involved. Yeah, right. I guess like if if there's a bunch of stuff being that's just showing up missing, somebody's going to be alerted. Yes. And on top of that, the neighbors around this compound could hear them firing automatic weapons at all hours of the day and night. So they also were reporting that. So they kind of had an idea of what was going on there. They kind of knew that it was a cult that they were like a, you know, racist, white supremacist, anti-government cult that was stockpiling weapons. Yeah. But Rick, who, you know, ran away from the farm back in April, had been having infrequent contact with that FBI agent over this period of time when, when this is all happening because the FBI agent reached out to him since when he first started investigating, Rick was the owner of the farm. So that's who he had to go to to, you know, try to get access to it. Mm-hmm. At first, Rick told him, like, no, I'm, I I can't really tell you anything because I'm afraid. And then after Luke was murdered, Rick eventually went back to the FBI agent and told him that's who he contacted in June. Oh, okay. Okay. So that FBI agent knew about that. And then he gets a call from these police officers after they arrest the two members with the stolen property. And he was already planning to, you know, do a search of the farm. Sure. But he goes and talks to them to get some information from them. So anyways, that's why, well... That's one of the reasons why multiple agencies were involved in the search because they they knew that this was going to be very dangerous since this is a doomsday cult with, you know, tons of automatic weapons. Right. They had to formulate a plan to get Michael away from the farm so that they could go in without him there and hoping that the other members would feel safer since he wasn't there to maybe speak up and tell them what's happening and get information from them. Right, right. And they were hoping that, you know, if Michael wasn't there, then there wouldn't be any planned attack with automatic weapons and stuff like that. So they do successfully get Michael away from the farm. They have a local sheriff go up to his farm and tell him that, hey, some feds are in town. They want to talk to you. It's not a big deal. It's mostly just a paperwork thing, but I think it'd be better if you came down to the station and talked to them as opposed to having them come up here to the farm to talk to you. So Michael agrees, and the last thing that he says to the sheriff before he takes him away is, you're going to bring me back, right? So anyways. <laughs> sure. And. 40 to 70 years. Right, exactly. (laughs) So they bring Michael to the station. He walks into the room and he's greeted by tons of agents from multiple different agencies. And he obviously knows it's over. Yeah. And then the people on the compound say that they are all just, you know, doing their, their normal tasks throughout the day. And all of a sudden they hear helicopters flying above. They see and hear cars rolling in deep with tons of agents and they have their guns out you know they're they're ready for a fight in case there's one there but there wasn't none of the the members were expecting any agents or anything like that so so they get there and 
they make arrests of the men. They don't arrest any of the women. And it, it seems that none of the women were ever actually involved in any of the murders. They were never present when they occurred. And they had to know they happened, though. Yeah. Yeah. They, they had to know that these dudes were chained to the. Yes. You know, yeah. Obviously. They yes. got a kid chained up. Yeah. And, you know, Ruth in the documentary says after Luke was killed, I started to question what we were doing here because I knew that that was not God's will, but I couldn't oh. say anything because oh, I was so afraid. It took a five-year-old's death for you to realize. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, Ruth. Not buying it. Well, I mean. I'm, not, I'm just, that's insanity. I think, I'm sorry, but I, you know, she's complicit. Well, they're all complicit, but some of them, it's it's okay for two things to be, or it's possible for two things to be true. It's possible for them to be victims of a yeah, of a cult yeah. and for them to be complicit in the murder and rape and et cetera, et cetera, of some of their members and of a child. Yeah. So, you know, I think that that is, that's the case is that they, you know, they were victims of a cult, but they were also complicit in these murders. The difference was that the men were actually there and helping to participate in the murders whereas mm. the women were always you know back in one of the trailers and never right. never helped you know murder or rape anyone that we know of did they go to prison the women yeah no none of the women went to prison and i'm going to tell you what happened to all of the men right now all right so after they're all arrested all of the defendants gave statements that corrobor- that corroborated one another but Michael disagreed with some of the things that other members said. I bet he did. <laughs> For w- one of the things that was really upsetting to Ruth, his ex-wife, was that she called him when he was in prison and she said, you're going to protect Dennis, right? Because right. at this point she realizes, oh my God, we have failed our child. We raised our child up in this fucked up brainwashing cult. And he never had a chance. We never right. gave him a chance. And Michael didn't. He didn't protect him at all. In fact, he tried to pass blame onto him. He also tried to say that it wasn't his idea to rape any of the men or to tell them to have sex with animals or to anally rape each other. He tried to distance himself from Luke's murder and... He also said that at times he he claimed that some of it was just Yahweh's will. So it's not my fault. Yeah, I mean, of course it's not his fault. You know, that's what he's going to say. Yeah. And I think that, you know, a lot of the things that he tried to claim he wasn't involved in were things that he knew would put a target on his back when he goes to prison. Oh, sure. So I think he tried to particularly distance himself from those types of things. Yeah, like he knew he was going to go upriver for the rest of his life, so he might as well try to mitigate whatever. Yeah. Michael, his son Dennis, and Timothy Haverkamp were all charged with first-degree murder. Mm. Michael and Dennis went to trial. So Michael was found guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced to death. Good. Dennis was found guilty of second-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison. Life in prison? But he appealed 
his sentence and it was reduced to manslaughter. So he was released after 12 years. Okay. Okay. Cause so we, do you know why I was going to say, is that because like he grew up in this, like you mentioned? I think so. Yeah. Like the kid, I mean, I imagine his life was just on that farm. Yep. It was. He had no outside influence. How can he be held accountable? Like he needs something, right? Yeah. But he just needs to be taught. Yeah. He, I mean, truly that was all that he knew was that cult. And he said that after he got to jail and he was around, you know, more people and exposed to, you know, regular people, he realized that everything that he had grown up believing was a lie. And he said all he could think about was how could my dad do this to me? How could he lie to me like this? Yeah, I can't imagine. He said he couldn't feel anything but anger for a really long time. Because, you know, for him, like, participating in that murder and participating in the rape and all of that, he was normal. proud of it because he thought he was doing what Yahweh wanted him to do. Yeah, he's doing what... This is what life is. And then he finds out that that's not what God wants. That's not God's will. And that's not what anything, that's nothing close to normal society. Right. It's not close to any normal society that has ever existed. Right. Like there are, you know, subsets like cults and these things, but no mainstream society has ever operated that way. Yeah. And he's just, now, you know, realizing it when he gets to jail. He gets so. to prison and gets to learn that that's fucked up. Yeah. That's a tough place to learn. That is a tough place to learn. That's a very tough place to learn. But I imagine that the people there taught him. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I wonder what he's doing now. Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, he was in the documentary, but I'm not quite sure what he, how his life is going and what he's doing. James Haverkamp and John David Andreas pled guilty to assault charges and were sentenced to 26 years in prison, but both were released after 13 years. Finally, Timothy Haverkamp was sentenced to 10 to life and was released after 23 years in prison. So those guys pled down is basically what they did? Some of them, yes. Yeah. Like the the like assault charges, right? I mean... Yeah. So... Michael Ryan was obviously on death row for a long time, and he ended up dying from cancer after nearly 30 years in prison on Couldn't death row. Couldn't happen to a nicer guy. Actually, when Dennis found out that his dad was dying, he said, so he's finally going to die. Best for everybody. Good riddance. Flush him down the toilet for all I care. So he was done with his dad at that point. And, you know, I hope that he has also realized that there was a lot of flaws in his father's ideology, not just the ones that are, you know, very obvious, but also, you know, the racist. And that that should be obvious. I don't mean that. I mean, like, I hope he realizes that it's not just the murder and the rape and those types of things that were really fucked up, but, you know, also has condemned the racism and all of that. I imagine he has. He's probably gone against everything the man ever said. Yeah, yeah. 
And and I know that he he said that he will never forgive himself for what happened. He feels very so. guilty about it, feels very bad about it. And David, the best friend of James, also feels terrible about it. And you can see when you watch the documentary just how much pain both of those oh, men you, carry, all the guilt that they carry, you can you can see. It'd be hard to get over. Yeah. So yeah, that was the the story of the Rulo cult. And like I said, I just wanted to talk about it because I I haven't seen a lot of people I haven't I haven't I can't, I couldn't yeah. believe that I had never heard that story before. It's hard to make fiction out of that one. Yeah, and I think that's another reason why it's not covered by a lot of people because it's incredibly hard to talk about and they're all incredibly hard to talk about. They are, but that one was specifically brutal. Yeah. Anything that has to do with children really 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 bothers me. Yeah. And and um you know, the thinking like the way you told the story, the thought of 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 James spending the night chained to the crate. That's what got me. Like that those those times, like those things. Ugh. Oof. Yeah. How how people can do that stuff to other human beings I don't understand. Which is why I keep listening to these stories. Trying to find something that I can understand. Yeah. It fascinates me. It, how twisted people can be. Yeah. It is um very fascinating. I, I wish that, you know, there were, I wish we had a better understanding of how these things happen so that we could prevent things like this. But it's, that's the difference between, you know, people like that and people like us. Like we just cannot understand it. And I also wanted to say that Dennis said that his father, like the last time that he had talked to him, Michael told Dennis that it was his fault that his prophecies hadn't materialized because Dennis didn't complete the circle. So just another way for Michael to, you know, manipulate the situation and say, Hey, it's not my fault that the, everything I said was going to happen didn't happen. It's because you Dennis didn't complete the circle. Okay. Enjoy your biscuits and gravy in the morning pop. And then he also convinced his, Dennis's grandma so Michael's mom that Dennis was the reason that Michael was on death row so you know he messed with their relationship too and she called him a snitch and it just it's very clear that Michael did not feel bad about anything that he did he never apologized to anyone he didn't care so yeah so anyways that is the end yeah, that's that's the story of the Rulo cult. And if you want to watch the documentary, it is Deadly Cults on Oxygen. The episode is called Killers of Rulo. So you can watch that if you want to. And if you guys have any thoughts about this, I would love to hear them. So please, you know, reach out via Gmail, darkoriginspod at gmail.com. Yeah or on Instagram, and we will have more social media coming soon. All right. See you next time. Thank you all so, so much for being here, and I'm so grateful. I love you all, and I will talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, 
people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.